Hi, this is State Senator Jill P. Carter, and you are listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, we have not been on in a few weeks, but that is because uh, I think we have a good reason. That's because we've really been boots on the ground and it's been incredibly busy for everyone in Annapolis. We're in crunch time now as we get to the end of session. Lots of issues still out there. Lots of issues put to bed. Things are moving quickly here in Annapolis. Michael, it's Thursday, April 7th. The General Assembly wraps up on Monday, so that is signy die. And I think today the, the intent is to go through some of the high profile issues, where they are, and give people a flavor of where things kind of sit right now in Annapolis as we wind things down for session. And then we want to get into our top four initiatives, the county's top four initiatives, where those issues stand, the top four priorities for MAKO. But Michael, how, how's it going for you? I'm, I'm sure you're just as tired as I am and everybody else in Annapolis is at this point. I think I think that's it. So so it's good to reconnect here and kind of dig back into some of this stuff. But honestly, if your needle isn't close to on E when you're at wherever we are, day 87 or 86 or whatever of a 90 day session, like if you're not on fumes at this point, you're not doing it right. So so and I think, uh, you know, by that by that test, we're doing it right because this has been that kind of year. So, um, so yeah, apologies for, for having a couple of weeks off. Um, they weren't weeks off, but just weeks off from the podcast. We'll, uh, so let's, let's make up for lost time. Let's have a good, good wrap up here with a few days left to go in session, but, uh, you know, there's still an awful lot left to, left to do. So let's get into it. Okay. So Michael, let's, let's start with high profile stuff. Number one being the budget. So normally the budget is really complicated, a lot of back and forth. And Michael, I'll I'll tell you that I I kind of am subscribing to the belief now that it's easier to do a budget when you don't have a lot of money. And it's harder (laughs) to do a budget when you have a ton of money. Maryland is in an unprecedented position in terms of uh, available funds. And uh, we've talked about the surplus. We know there's a lot of cash out there. But I'll tell you that, you know, we started this session, I think everybody showed up with their wish list and, you know, we had another revenue right up in the middle of session. And so everybody thought, man, everybody's going to get everything they want. We have all this cash. But that mood kind of shifted, I'd say. And it became clear that, look, we're not going to just spend like drunken sailors. We're going to put a bunch of money into the sock. We're going to put some money away for future priorities. But we did do a lot of good things in this budget. There's a lot of capital money out there. So really smooth sailing though with the budget michael and i I think maybe fair to say this has this been the easiest budget that you've ever seen because you've been down here for so many years i mean what's your take on the budget at this point yeah i I don't know if easy is the right word but um i I don't know it it, it certainly hasn't been a contentious cycle and and sometimes they are sometimes when you're making when you're making sacrifices and saying a lot of no we can't uh, those are difficult priorities that you have to sort through. And this is different. It's still prioritizing, but when you have a surplus and it's not clear whether it's, you know, a momentary thing or whether it's a lasting thing, we're, we're still all trying to 
you know, process what's going on with the economy, with government revenues and so forth. But anyway, I guess, you know, you could say it's it's been an easy year in the sense that maybe not as much blood being shed and tears shed and so forth. But I, I think I think I think in the aggregate, um, a lot of decisions being made and sort of the things that we talked about back in December, January on the pod about the state making a big focus on one-time things that you can do rather than making tons of multi-year permanent commitments that maybe you do a lot of focus on short time. You mentioned capital stuff like building buildings and, and, and making those kinds of one-time commitments. State's doing a good deal of that. And uh, I don't know, the whole fiscal plan kind of came together. There's a little bit of tax cutting going on with, with you know retirees and some other other groups of Marylanders getting some tax credits and that sort of thing through the income tax, um, that's going to make some stakeholders pretty happy. There's going to be a lot of projects that are going to get accelerated. That you know maybe we thought it was going to take five years to do some of this stuff. We'll do some of it now because we have cash. So you know, in the aggregate, there are years when there's a lot of battle wounds from getting the budget plan done. This isn't exactly that year. A lot of negotiation on exactly what to do, but it came together. And I think a lot of members and the administration come away with things that we're really looking for. Yep. So the, the budget, I mean, I think it's a great budget. I know that the the leadership has been happy. The budget achieves a structural balance. It, It preserves reserves. There's a lot of money there for tax relief, as you mentioned, 350 million to provide tax relief for retirees. You know, there's a work opportunity tax credit. We we've, we've exempted diapers and bottles and things like that. Medical devices, medical supplies from the sales yeah. and use tax. That was a big deal. A lot of talk about that. They've increased funding for public schools, uh, future priorities. So there, there's a lot here. I think it's a good budget. We'll link to it in our coverage. But again, from a county perspective, Michael, most of the stuff that we typically worry about in terms of you know protecting our uh, revenues and our share of the pie, if you will, the really important things that we rely on through the state budget, that normally comes in the in the BRFA bill, right? And that's we've talked about that. That's sort of the companion bill to the budget to make things work. And that's where uh, the governor has to propose some cuts to make everything work. We didn't have that this year. So yeah. we weren't really worried about cuts to community colleges or you know shifts and assessments and stuff like that. So from our perspective, we didn't have to worry about a BRFA, but there still was a, a lot of work that went into this budget. And I think the end product, a lot of people are happy with and a lot of priorities are being funded. And they've put a lot of money in the sock to make sure that, you know, Again, we're not spending like drunken sailors. We have reserves in case something goes wrong. The rainy day fund is strong. So I think around town, you know, everybody seems to be pretty happy with this budget. Everybody voted for it. And so I think that was pretty well. They went to a conference committee. It was relatively quick between the House and the Senate. And that's all put to bed at this point. Right. So so that's, you know, big, big few check marks there that this is stuff that occasionally we come to the last day of session without the budget done or without the capital budget done, that sort of thing. It's not going to be like that this year. That stuff's put to bed, fiscal stuff basically behind them. So, all right. So that, that's pretty good. But still plenty of things going on for these last few days. We're recording on Thursday night. We expect a pretty long day on Friday. Uh, it sounds like both the Senate and the House are planning to be in town and working hard during the day on Saturday. Most likely they'll be able to take off on Sunday and then a full day on and off the floor of the House and Senate on Monday as they tie everything down. So there's a lot of things going on, but these last few days, 
I don't know, over the course of the, these last few days, they will probably end up passing like three or 400 more bills, things that have been, you know, at various points in the pipeline through the legislative process. They've gotten through the Senate. They need to finish their way through the House. That's a really common circumstance right now. And like, unless you play this game, it's not obvious how much is left to these last literally like waning hours. Right. And so there's there's a lot still out there and there's a lot that has already been wrapped up. Some of this stuff is on the governor's desk. Let's do a quick rapid fire, Michael, of some of the higher profile issues, and then we'll get into our initiatives and where they stand. Yeah, yeah. All, uh, what's gotten a lot of attention and ha- a lot of people are on edge redistricting. And, you know, we're two sets of maps here, Michael, right? We have the congressional maps and then the state uh, legislative maps. And we won't get too deep into this, but the bottom line is the congressional maps are done. The governor signed off. Uh, they, they had to go through court and the General Assembly had to draw another map. They, they did that quickly. And so that's put to bed. But what's still laying out there are the state level maps, Michael. And that is in court right now, the Court of Appeals. There was a special magistrate appointed to sort of look through all of this and make recommendations. The recommendations there were we should just keep the maps as they are. A lot of this stuff is interesting, but this is not the year to do it. We're running out of time. So the recommendation from the special magistrate was accept the maps, do not overturn them. These should be on the books. But uh, the Court of Appeals has said, okay, we get it, but we're going to let people come in and explain why uh, the, why they agree or don't agree with what the magistrate said. And the interesting thing there is, Michael, that date <laughs> is after the General Assembly leaves town. So when the General Assembly finishes at midnight on Monday, they won't know if they will have to come back to town to draw a new set of state level districts, right? And so that's that's kind of right. got people on edge. And of course, that affects the election dates as well. So that's also something on the minds of many legislators who are anxious to get back home and knock doors and get out and talk to voters because we have an election coming up very soon. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that, that was a really nice, quick rundown. I don't think I can add a whole lot to that. I mean, you and you and Jared DeMarinus walked through some of these nuts and bolts a few weeks ago and, and laid out how this could how this could play out and, and mostly, I think, identified the direction things are heading. So, so we'll see what happens in the courts, but I would just say, I mean, they didn't draw a name out of a phone book for this first analysis by the Court of Appeals. Judge Wilner, the very respected figure in, in the Maryland judiciary, and his his analysis was awfully thorough. So when, when he went through all that and concluded, you know, I, I don't think there's the, the merit here to just throwing out all these maps and starting over or redrawing or, or that sort of thing, I, I think that... Um, you know, there's, I, I don't, I don't know how to say it. You know, this, it's, it's something of a tell, I think. So we could be with everybody running in circles saying, oh my gosh, the sky's falling. I'm not sure we're seeing that mm-hmm. around Annapolis about this. So, so we'll see, that'll be, you know, basically this time next week, we'll see some of the pieces of that coming together in the wake of the legislative session and, and, and who knows what happens from there. But Anyway, redistricting, one of the big topics we knew had to come up this year, and no surprise, it's been complicated and a little thorny and difficult. So, yeah, we kind of predicted all that. Right. And another big issue, Michael, we know that there was a a big climate bill that a lot of people were talking about. This is for the past few years. There's a massive piece of legislation that uh, worked its way through the Senate and the House, and, and that's now wrapped up as well, Michael. That took a lot of time, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but that is now on the governor's desk. Right. And and so like wrapped up in the sense that the legislature is through with its process, but maybe not done. 
um, there was, you know, the, the bill was passed with enough time left in the legislative session that if Governor Hogan wants to issue a veto on that bill, which seems like it's a possibility, there were a number of members of his party who are concerned about multiple things in the bill. So if Governor Hogan vetoes the bill, the General Assembly is still in town to be able to override that veto if they want to do so. And I, I think, I don't I don't think I'm breaking any news. I think the smart money is the, both of those things happen. So, so the House and the Senate have time to bring it back to the floor and say, do we want to have a supermajority vote to override a governor's veto on this? And I think a handful of other topics that may, may end up you know, running that same, that same course. It's kind of become normal with these legislative leaders and this governor for the last few years. Right. And another high profile issue that I think is in the same posture is paid family leave. Another one of the priorities that w- were set by the House and the Senate, they wanted to pass a strong bill that would provide Marylanders with with paid leave in the event that they are sick or a family member falls ill, that they'd be able to take time off. And they do that through sort of, uh, I think that the way you sort of uh, um, laid it out, Michael, and we've talked about is sort of like, you know, when you, it's it's an insurance, right? So everybody has to pay a portion of their paycheck and this is on a sliding scale, but you know, you, you pay into this system and if you need the time, you can take it. And, you know, this was sort of a, a, a drawn out process where the House at one point said, look, we just want to do a study. There's a lot of moving parts. And the Senate wanted to do a stronger bill. They wanted to actually pass a bill that sets up the system. And eventually, Michael, they, they sort of compromised in many ways, but they did pass a bill that sets up uh, paid family leave. They, they sort of outlined how the system's going to work, but there are some delays in the implementation. There are some studies here, but that's also been sent to the governor. I think that's another candidate for the governor to over to, to veto, and the general assembly would have to come back and consider an override. Right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair, and and that was a multi-step process, even on something that has been brewing for a long time. Uh, and it was a, it was sort of a convoluted process through the legislature. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we want to spend 40 minutes talking about it. We probably could, but as a, as a practical matter that did take up an awful lot of oxygen this session and, and a lot of, you know, blood, sweat and tears from members, you know, you know, fighting the specifics and we got, Oh, there's the Senate plan. Here's the house plan. Now here's a new compromise plan. And it's a combination of do it and figure out the details for a little bit later. So um, I don't, I don't know if that's a half a loaf approach, but uh, you know, nonetheless, it's a, it's going to be a big accomplishment. I think you're right that this probably ends up with a governor's veto and a legislative override and becomes law. So that's probably the path ahead there too. Yep. And cannabis, another high profile issue. We came into this session, the Senate and the House were on different pages. The Senate said, look, we could just pass a bill to, to, to legalize adult use cannabis. The House always said we want to put this issue on the ballot. The issue will end up on the ballot, Michael. Uh, a lot to figure out if that is to pass. I predict that it will. I don't think that's breaking news either, but that'll right. be before the voters on the ballot. And then you have to come back and sort of, there's a lot of issues to iron out you know, uh, a lot, a lot of issues, right? So when you're doing something like this, we already have medical cannabis. How does that play in? We've always had issues with licenses and who gets them. You have a lot of social justice issues to work out. So that'll be on the ballot. And then they'll come back if it passes and sort of work out the specifics on how the system's going to work. 
I, I don't know if this is a candidate for something the governor uh, should will veto. Not really sure. That's one of the ones that I think is in a gray area. But that is also now multiple bills right. on the governor's desk. And there will be time for the General Assembly, if the governor were to veto that bill, to come back, take a look and, and potentially override. Right. So we're, so we're on the precipice of this getting too nerdy and technical, even for our beloved followers. But there is a special process in the fourth year of the political term where the General Assembly, like what, what you can't do this year is come back in January and override the governor's veto because it'll be a new gubernatorial term. It'll be a new General Assembly seated next January. So in, in the 2020 or 21 session, you could come back the following year and override a governor's veto. This year, you don't have that ability. So the idea of getting some bills passed with enough time at the end of the 90-day session for the governor to make a final call and for the legislature to react if they want to was all baked into this cake. So some of these high-profile issues that felt like they might be a split um, that's the reason why they've already been passed. They've been sent to the governor in anticipation of let's make sure we've got time during the 90 days to do an override if we want to speak it from the point of view of the legislative leadership. So anyway, a few of those things kind of in the rearview mirror, but that, that is, that, those are some of the things that have made the last few weeks um, you know, busy for us and busy for a lot of stakeholders around Annapolis with countless other things brewing and bubbling as well. Yeah, and one of the other, real quick, high-profile issues that many people have spent a lot of time on and um, the Senate has spent a lot of time on over the past uh, few weeks is cybersecurity. There are mm -hmm. a suite of bills moving through the General Assembly. This is an, an issue that almost was a MAKO initiative. It, I'd say it's number five for us. Mm -hmm. We've spent a lot of time uh, working on task forces and, and work groups to come up with recommendations and now working through these bills there are multiple bills. Uh, the House passed a bunch of bills. They sent them to the Senate. The Senate worked really hard over the past few weeks, a lot of back and forth, but they are now moving that package of bills. And it looks like this one, Michael, there are many differences now between what the House and Senate have done. So it'll probably end up in a conference committee, but those bills are moving. I think the biggest thing for local yeah. governments is, look, we know that cybersecurity is a huge issue, particularly with the you know, international political climate at this point. There is an uptick in cyber attacks. Many of those are aimed at state and local governments. So the idea here is to, to commit a lot of money to bolstering cybersecurity defenses at the state and local level. And I, I'm pretty confident that there will be a good product that comes out of this. Still a lot of work to do there, but cybersecurity is certainly something that's still on everyone's mind, and they are moving bills. We expect those to get done as well. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the, the tenor of that is up your defense game, have a, have a good plan in the event that there's a problem, and make sure there's a lot of resources to go around so that everybody can be at a high level here. So, that, I mean, at that level, everybody seems to be on board. Now, the details of exactly who's in and how do you do it and so forth, that's what's going to have to get ironed out over these last few days. But I'm not, like, I'm not too anxious about this whole thing falling apart. I feel like there's too much at stake for that to happen. So I'm optimistic we're going up with a series of good bills on that. Absolutely. So general wrap up there of a few of the high profile issues. And Michael, I want to pivot now to MAKO's top four issues. These are our legislative yeah. initiatives, right? They're member driven. We go through a whole process and we always have four, right? That's in our bylaws. So we pick the top four most important issues for county governments and we go and advocate on those issues. So I'll start 
with our election initiative. Uh, this is one that we've had for a few years now, really excited for this one. Uh, the state and local governments, uh, we, we, we both fund elections and elections are run by counties, but the state, you know, they sort of dictate the kind of systems we use and the processes. So for a long time, we've had this back and forth with the state about who pays for what, right? And uh, we've had uncodified language uh, since the year 2000 that governs the way we fund elections. And counties have always felt like the state sometimes, you know, interprets that the way that they want to, and it's not been consistent. A lot of back and forth, but the good news is uh, we passed a really strong bill. It is on the governor's desk right now. The bill codifies that, that funding language. We get certainty for who pays for what. There's not gonna be any surprises. That's a really good thing. And there was an amendment added to the bill that requires that for the 2022 election, you have at least as many precincts, polling places as you did in 2018. And I think the idea there is the General Assembly wants to make sure that we don't move yet to the voting center concept, which we did during the pandemic. It worked well, but I think we're not there yet. So they wanna make sure that local boards and the state board are still making sure we have access to all these polling places for the 22 election. But Michael, that's wrapped up. It got through the House and the Senate. It's on the governor's desk. And I'm really happy and proud about this initiative. It's really good for county governments and for the state. I think everybody gets certainty now. There's no surprises, no bills showing up at the door, and you don't really know what you're supposed to pay for. So really good outcome there. Yeah. And like, like we're not going to make any apologies for getting revved up on something that is decidedly unsexy like this topic. Right. But, you know, if, if you're if you're someone who's trying to plan the county budget and what are your priorities and what do you have to fund the idea of having some predictability and knowing, oh, there's this, you know, there's a process underway and the state's about to enter into a big contract for a bunch of equipment. And I know that my share of that is going to be some prorated amount so I can plan for that because it's it's clear how that's progressing and it's clear who's going to pay for what. There's a lot of value in that for decision makers at county government. So I know it's not thrilling. I know it's it's not, you know, it's not like going to change the world exactly. But, you know, for some of our fellow green eye shade types, it might change the world a little bit. We like that. Absolutely. So shout out to Senator Cheryl Kagan, Delegate Julie Polakovich Carr, the Senate and the House sponsor of those bills. Really grateful to them and all the work they put into this, but really good outcome with our election initiative. The next yeah. one we'll talk about, we, we've talked a lot about protecting public officials, Michael, and especially during the pandemic, we've seen threats uh, increase. We've seen people showing up at you know some of these folks' houses and threatening them. And so we really feel strongly that we need to extend protections that are already um, guaranteed for legislators, right? So there are special protections in place right now for legislators and for, uh, you know, an enumerated list of folks that add on layer of, of protection to say you cannot threaten a public official, you cannot intimidate someone. And the whole idea here was we wanted to make sure this was also extended to our health officers and our election officials. Yeah. We have a bill that's got out of the Senate. It is in the House right now, but we're pretty confident that one's going to move. Michael, talk a little bit about that and where that sits. You know, I, I think, I mean, the most overwhelming case right now, looking at today's headlines, has been for the frontline leaders making decisions about public health. And we've seen it the last couple of years more sharply than ever. But this issue has a multi-year lead up that th this is a really, really tricky topic. And it's already against the law to shake your fist and threaten the life of a county commissioner and say, hey, if you do the zoning that way, it's going to be, you know, kaput for you or for your kids. You can't do that. 
Like that's a crime, not just against the county commissioner, but it's against the system of government that they're supposed to be part of. And that's why you make that a separate crime. Well, health officers need to make decisions in the public interest and they need, I mean, we're asking them to be public servants that way. Uh, Sadly, we've had an uptick in the number of people who are shaking their fists and grabbing their pitchfork and calling for the heads of people like the health officers. It's not right. It's not fair. You need a law to say that is not cool. Um, I'm optimistic we're going to get this bill out of the House of Delegates. Um, Like we said earlier, there's lots of bills that have gone through a bunch of process and just need to clear final hurdles these last couple of days. I think I think we're going to get we're going to get a bill out of the House and to the governor's desk that protects our health officers in the same way that that county commissioner is protected. It's a stated crime. And mostly what you want to do is say, cut it out. This is against the law. You're not allowed to do that. Have a debate. Have a you know, your First Amendment rights entitle you to express your opinion, but not to threaten anyone's family. Right. And that's the idea here. We're not trying to stifle public debate, but if you're going to threaten someone or intimidate someone or show up at their house or send a threatening email or call someone and threaten their family, that should be clear that we're not going to tolerate that here in Maryland. It shouldn't be tolerated anywhere. So I'm confident as well that that's going to get over the finish line. The next one, Michael, is our EMS initiative. This one is super important to me and I know to everyone at Mako and across the counties, there's been so much interest here we've had folks working the phones and showing up talking to people but the whole idea here michael we're talking about emergency service transporters right and maryland's medical assistance program and we know that uh for a long time we have underfunded our ems providers who transport patients right and who show up and maybe they administer naloxone or they're out in the community doing mobile integrated health and um, this initiative is also one that you know has gotten out of the Senate. It's in the House. There's been a lot of back and forth. We've been watching voting lists, but it seems like this <laughs> one's going to move. Michael, uh, just walk us through a little bit what we're talking about here, where we stand, and what's your outlook for our EMS initiative. It's super, super important, especially to our EMS providers who, especially through COVID, I mean, I think it's shown us that we need to take a new look at this formula and make sure that we adequately fund, properly fund our EMS folks who do the lion's share of work at the local level when it comes to, you know, emergency yeah. management and um, EMS stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think like we've, we've talked about this initiative and what the bill would do a little bit in the past, but I think the easiest way to summarize the whole thing is that what we're saying is this is medical care, right? Like, so, so Maryland law right now says if, a, if an ambulance picks you up at your home and you need to be taken to a hospital, that we can bill your insurance company. You start with Medicaid, which is government insurance for people of low means, um, but Medicaid sort of sets the tone for the entire insurance community in Maryland and in any state. So what this bill does is says, it's not just delivery to a hospital that counts for that kind of reimbursement, but what if somebody resuscitates you at your home? Or what if they need, what if they just say, listen, you just need to get your broken ankle set. We'll get you to an urgent care where they can take care of that. You don't need to go wait in line at the emergency room. Well, today that's not considered medical care. This bill would say, of course it is. (laughs) And then, you know, this, this idea of when you're not responding to an emergency, let's leverage the, the staff and the equipment that we have for emergencies to go out and target underserved areas in your community 
where they might not have lots of primary providers and people who are not getting enough screening and not getting enough testing and so forth. Let's get out there and help them. Let's use that as like a, a like a mobile healthcare device. Uh, let's just be smart about that. Let's max out the resources we got and deliver it as healthcare and bill insurance for it. This is this is a really easy to understand concept at that level. That's what this bill would do. We got a really good bill with a three-year lifespan out of the Maryland Senate, and we're in the House. The committee has been a little back and forth, but when it finally got a vote before its subcommittee, unanimous vote, everybody understands what we're trying to do. So, I, again, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that in these last couple of days, we're going to get a bill out of the House of Delegates. Uh, the Senate is going to, I think, agree with the final changes the House are going to put on it. We're going to end up with a good bill and move the needle on this issue for the first time in more than 20 years. It's, it's kind of crazy that we're still operating under laws that were written literally last century. <laughs> no doubt about it. And so I'm optimistic as well. And I think the bottom line here is we should incentivize our EMS folks to meet people where they are, to be proactive, get out into the community, make sure people have this life-saving care, yeah. this preventative care. And that's what we're trying to do here. I'm optimistic that one's going to get across the finish line. And Michael, we'll, we'll save the, the highest profile for last. This is a recurring issue that we've seen for county governments, municipal governments is at the top of the slate of initiatives uh, most often. And this is highway user revenue. We're talking about money for local roads. We know in Maryland, Michael, that local governments maintain the lion's share of roads, five out of six road miles maintained by local governments. Yeah. In Maryland, uh, we, we, we have a structure for how we fund transportation and that's the transportation trust fund for years. Uh, counties got 30% of those revenues and mostly gas tax, some other transportation related revenues during hard times in the recession way back when 2009 or so, the state fell on hard times, they had to shift those funds away from local governments and back to the state. And ever since counties, municipalities have been arguing that we need to restore this funding because again, we maintain all the roads. Michael, I think this is the most significant progress that's been made. There's no doubt about it. Ever since that happened. Let's talk about that bill. And there have been some changes by the House and the Senate, but I kind of want to mm -hmm. walk through where we are, how we got there, and what this bill looks like now as it is moving toward final passage. We think that the Senate's going to pass a bill, the House is going to agree, and then it's going to go to the governor's desk. But a lot of people have been talking about this, a lot of people excited. But again, some pretty big changes from where the bill came in as to where we are now. I've teed you up, so take it away, Michael. Talk about highway users and what's going on. Yeah, this is this is at risk of of becoming its own again, like forty five minute topic. So I'll try and I'll try and be reasonable, but like we're really deeply invested here. This is a gigantic fiscal issue that's kind of sitting in between the state and its local governments, because where we've been sitting for the last decade plus just doesn't make any sense. Um, we're not a state that says that the counties and cities can have your own gas tax, go raise your own revenue and pave your roads with it. There are places that do that. That's not our model. Um, for the, there are other places where the state says, well, the local governments don't have transportation revenue, so we'll just pay for the roads for everybody and we'll maintain all the roads all the way down to Main Street level. We don't do that in here either. The model for Maryland has always been the state has a gas tax and a tax on your car and some other odds and ends. We put the whole thing into a pot and we take 
three-tenths of that money and send it to the locals, and they can maintain their roads. And for decades, it worked just fine. We were Jake. And Michael, that's, anyway. that's right. And I, it's important because that's that's the way the state set it up, right? This is right. the way the state has decided to do this. You mentioned other models in other states. We don't have a local gas tax in Maryland. The state's not paving all of our roads. We maintain five out of six road miles at the local level. The state set it up that way, and it worked well for a really long time. Right. So so they tell the local governments, you're in charge of maintaining all these roads, but we're going to give you a fair share of the revenues that we raise so that you can do it. And we have a formula to send it out and who gets what and so forth. So anyway, that worked fine until things fell apart in the Great Recession. It was 2009. It was a weird summer afternoon. And suddenly we find out that 90 percent of that money is going to get diverted to the state general fund because it was a crisis. But the assumption was, okay, well, of course, you know, they're going to need the money for a year or maybe two years and then everything will be set right. But it never was. We've been, we've been on, a, you know, 12 cents on the dollar, 14 cents on the dollar, basically ever since. Uh, in 2018, got a little bit of a bump forward that carried us for a few years. But here we are again, trying to make progress on this. Um, so, so this session, um, you know, you've already sort of broken the seal. We've got a bill on the way. It's coming out of the Senate, and it's going to have the biggest advance on this front since 2009. So that's really, really good news. The, the, the sort of weird path to get from a full restoration bill, right? That's what you do. You, 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 your opening offer is let's do the whole enchilada. Right. So we had, you know, a bipartisan, big, broad sponsor lines in the House and Senate. We had county, municipal, Baltimore City, all three stakeholders at the table saying full restoration. Now's the time. There's federal funds. There's surplus. There's no better time to do right by this and do right by Maryland motorists than today. And a lot of momentum for that. Where we end up is a weird path. Um, House of Delegates moves first with uh, an incremental move forward that I mean, shouldn't be lost, that absent doing anything, we were about to fall off a cliff and have that local share actually go down. Instead of going up, we were about to fall down to only like half or so of where we are today. So avoiding that was a big step. Moving a little bit forward moved us in the right direction. But I think we had a debate about the magnitude and how much how much is needed to you know, how much we need to do, and should we be able to take advantage of given that set of circumstances, right? Right, right. So the House moved a bill. It was a, a a step in the right direction. But I think we always said, and you know, the municipalities in Baltimore City said our goal is to do better. And the Senate, the Senate had signaled that they were going to take a really hard look at this. There was a big show in the Senate with, you know, county mm -hmm. after county, after municipality, after municipality, everybody showed up and said, this is our number one priority. This is why it's so important. Same deal in the House, although it was virtual, but the House moved a bill. The Senate was in possession of the bill. And that's where the action was now for weeks, Michael. This has right. been like every day. And it feels like it feels like 10 weeks. It was probably oh more gosh. like two and a half weeks, but it, it feels like an eternity. I mean, when, when you're when you're this invested in an issue and when your members are this focused and they're this dependent on a good outcome from the state policy process, then like every day is just like pacing. And, you know, you and I spent so much time in the hallway outside the budget and tax committee wondering, you know, is this going to be it? Is this a session where it's coming up and they're going to sort it out and, and, you know, you know, wrestle through all this sort of stuff. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fine. 
be that as it may. Um, basically, the big turn was a public announcement by the governor, because what we didn't realize was that as the Senate Budget and Taxation Committee, who had this bill, was sort of sitting on this bill, they were also negotiating other things about how much income tax relief could be part of the big fiscal plan and so forth. So this topic kind of got wrapped up in affordability of the overall fiscal plan. And what we didn't realize was that fiscal leaders felt like using some resources from the general fund as a way to backfill the transportation fund to make a good highway user bill possible. We didn't realize that all those pieces were in play. So once that came together, it made more sense. But it's just in the last few days, we had the governor make an announcement end of last week saying, we think we're going to be able to raise the local share all the way to 20%. Doesn't get us all the way to 30, but to 20 is a big move forward. It's a multi-year plan. And at the end of that multi-year is not going to be anywhere near as dire a fiscal cliff as what we face today. So, I mean, you bundle all those things together and that's a pretty big multi-year commitment that involves a little bit of lost money from the state's general fund to patch things over. We're going to keep projects that are in the current uh, sort of transportation capital plan, keep -hmm. those things on track and get the municipal, Baltimore City, and county governments to a higher tier of funding than where we have been before. So we're starting to check some of the boxes that the local governments were asking about. And that's good. Right. And I, and I, and I have to say, I mean, I don't think if you talk to any legislator that they'll tell you, oh, I don't, I don't think this is the right thing to do, right? Everybody seems, and if you look at the sponsor lines on these bills, everybody knows this is important. Everybody thinks we need to do this. It's all about making the numbers work. And that's sort of what's been going on for years. We've made this argument. This is the year, right? We've made a big advance, but we saw a bill pop out. You you mentioned sort of the pathway. This got wrapped up in budget negotiations. A bill came out of the Senate Budget and Taxation Committee. You mentioned the 80-20 split. Walk us through now. So local governments are going to get 20%. Walk us through how the funding breaks down and how we got to that point. Yeah, so, so this is where things are going to get tricky, and this is where some stakeholders are going to scratch their chin and wonder, how did this happen? And I, I can say that county governments are wondering, where do these numbers come from? Um, to some degree, it's because we knew what full restoration looked like. So the bill that was originally introduced, Senator McRae in the Senate, Delegate Anderton in the House introduced the same bill that said, here's what full restoration to all the levels of local government looks like, and that's what the bill ought to be. And, you know, with with three full cups of tea, all three of us are saying, yeah, this is it. This is the right answer. Um, What you end up with in this bill, because it's a partial solution, is you end up with the three cups of tea at different levels of being full relative to full restoration. I'm, I'm torturing that analogy a little bit, but um, well, two, you end two, up, two of the cups are overflowing and, yeah, and right. one is, is not there. Right. So, so, so this looks weird when you measure it on that scale. And those of us who have been super deeply invested, like, you know, we felt like, Oh, for the County governments, 
the 23 county governments, we felt like, okay, we know what the right share is. It should be 15.3% of the whole pie. That's what full restoration looks like. And this bill is only going to get us to about five. And so on the surface, it's like, wait, hold on, that leaves you awfully short. And it does. There's, there's no denying that this plan is going to leave the 23 counties short of full restoration, substantially higher than where we are today or where we were going to be in the next few years without this bill. So it's a good, strong, important step forward, but it's not full restoration um, across the 23 counties. It's it's going to be a move in the right direction, but another incremental move. Right. Um, at, the, at the same time, the city of Baltimore has always been an unusual carve out here. They have responsibilities different from anybody else. They take care of all the state roads in Baltimore City. Nobody else does that. They've always had an outsized share because they do big highways and so forth that lo- most local governments do not. Um, by virtue of their share going up as part of this 20% compromise, they're going to get back to full funding. And that is terrific for Baltimore City, and it's terrific for their infrastructure. And if you're a county government looking over your shoulder, you might be scratching your head about it. And, and meanwhile, the municipal share, um, because of the way this formula got patched together, they're actually going to get, you know, they're, they're going to have tea flowing over into the saucer. Um, they're going to end up with substantially more than what just by the simple numbers full restoration looked like. Um, they'll be able to do some catch up which is, I think, needed, and, and they've been behind for a number of years like our counties have, but they're going to get to full restoration and then some. So, like, on the surface, thinking of it that way, how does, how does this look compared to so-called full restoration? This feels awfully uneven, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that just, you know, back to my teacup analogy, that feels weird. Right. And you would look at these numbers and think, my goodness, there must have been some, some weird stuff going on, some back and forth winners and losers, all kinds of tricky math. But really, Michael, I I want you to break down how this works. And it's not as complicated as one might think when you look at these numbers and think, wow, this this just seems like out of whack. It's it's not complicated. There wasn't tricky math here. It was actually pretty simple math. Yeah, um, uh, unbelievably simple, actually. But um, I think the short version is that... um, through a weird process. Again, Baltimore City has always been an exception. There were some quirky things that happened along the way between 2009 and today that had the municipal share closer to restoration than the county share. So because of things that have happened before this year, you ended up with some weird starting points. When when the, the big deal got cut, when the administration and the House fiscal leaders and the Senate fiscal leaders worked out their final compromise and said, this is what we want to do, we want to get to 20%, the easiest way to do that is say, well, we're funding at 13.5% now, let's just take everybody's share and increase it proportionally. We're going to go from 13.5% to 20 that's basically everybody gets almost half again what they're getting today. Boom, boom, done, right? Done. And so, so like that, so you'll notice the absolute absence of any malevolent dark figure saying, oh, you know, what we really don't like are county roads, or what we really don't like are county governments, or this is right. a regional thing, or it's a partisan thing, or it's who's the sponsor of the bill, or anything like that. It's got nothing to do with that. This was just 
take the distribution we have today and expand everybody by the same amount. And that's basically what's in this bill that's coming out of the Senate. I know it's easy for county governments to look at where we end up relative to full restoration and say, wow, we have so far to go and the other two teacups are full. But the reality is everybody does budgets this way. Where were you now? Where were you last year? What do you propose to change one year you know, from last year to this year? And the answer is going to be like 48 or 50% increase for all three line items, which seems eminently fair. So mm-hmm. anyway, it leaves us in a tricky spot. Baltimore City is going to end up fully restored. Municipal governments are fully restored and then some. County governments make an important and substantive step forward. We're going to be grateful for that. We're going to put it to good use and we're going to stay at work on this issue. Yep. And that, that's, that's important to remember. It's, it's a big step forward. We're not going to fall off the cliff that everybody was worried. Hey, you know, we're really going to get cut if they don't do anything. So that was the first priority. Second priority was to take a big step forward. We wanted full restoration. We're going to get some. And I, I think everybody takes a positive step here. Michael, where are we with the bill? The bill is, is in the Senate right now. It's on the floor. Uh, I believe they had to take it back to second reader yeah. to uh, do some sponsor amendments get some people onto the bill, but it'll pass the Senate and we expect that the House will take the Senate amendments. Yeah, I I don't think we have to worry about process here. There's Mm -hmm. there's sort of a global agreement that this is the way to go. The governor's on board. Both parties seem to be on board. The House and Senate leaders are on board. So, you know, there might be a few grumbles along the way about, hey, what about what about my neighbor versus me and that sort of thing? I get it. But the reality is this is the deal. It's a good deal. And we're all going to take it and we're going to work from here. So um, I'm not worried about process. There's a couple of days for this to get through. There's a Senate and House bill, both making it out of the Senate. The House will agree with those Senate amendments and this will be a done deal. Yep. And what's looming, too, Michael, is that we have billions of dollars coming to Maryland through the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. That was the federal legislation that really was a huge deal, a huge win for county governments, local governments across the country, pours billions into Maryland, much of that specifically for roads and bridges. So this is not the end of the story, I think, when it comes to the money that's going to be flowing back to where it belongs to the locals, again, who maintain five out of six road miles. I think there's another shoe to drop in terms of how that all gets parsed out. Might not be during this session, but there's no doubt that the state is going to be in receipt of billions of dollars, much of that, again, for roads. So I think there's some optimism there as well that, you know, counties should be a part of that pie. And I would have to think that because we maintain so many of the roads, uh, it would have to work out that way. So so some more to come there, I think, to optimism for me on that front. But at the end of the day, we all take a big step forward with highway user, a recurring major issue. And um, and I'm happy with uh, for everybody. But I think, again, you know, we're going to have to come back in five years again, as is always the case. So this will be another another big, 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 big push when this funding sort of sunsets. But you're right. We won't fall all the way off the cliff. Um, We won't fall back to where we could have fallen or where we are right now. We'll actually be higher when all of this sunset. So good outcome. We expect that to move. And I expect the governor will hold a big signing ceremony. This is something he's really been caring about. And I expect you'll see a lot of local officials showing up to be a part of that. 
Yeah. So, so good outcome camping off years and years of working on this. So it's good. Like it's, it's not over, but this is a really important, good move forward. And a lot of people had to come together and agree it was the right thing to do. So we're, we have the list of list of people to thank on this is longer than our two sponsors who've been great, but there's lots of other people who were all necessary to make it happen. And our, our county government leaders and the leaders from Baltimore city who showed up and took the time to make the case and make this personal and explain their roads and their infrastructure and so forth. Like this would not have happened without them showing up in full force. No doubt about it. And you and the makeup policy team have written a lot about these initiatives. I'll make sure to include all of those in the show notes for people who want to do a deeper dive than, than we can do on this podcast in the time that we have. So all of that will be available. Michael, we've talked through some of the big issues. We've talked through the initiatives. We've talked through sort of how the end of session is going to look over the next few days. Anything else on your mind before we wrap up here on Thursday evening? I'm trying to find how do we make, like, by the end of the session, I think we need to come up with a polished analogy for the ever forward, the the giant cargo ship that is stuck in the Chesapeake Bay Uh, while we're in these last days of session. And I I haven't quite polished it and put it together, but I feel like there's a a sort of a parable to be had about being, you know, being stuck in the mud and all that kind of stuff. But hopefully we'll get the ever forward free and we'll get through these last few days of session. We'll get a bunch of bills signed. We'll get a lot of things done, get people back out on campaign trail and politics will go on just like, you know, commerce and the supply chain and so forth. Right. I'm not, I'm still not there. I got to work on that material. Yeah. It's out there. It's it's, it's just waiting (laughs) for someone to, to make the analogy. And if you think you're having a bad day, um, don't if you're the owner of the Ever Forward, this is the same owner, the same shipping right. line that was in stuck the in the Suez Canal, right? <laughs> like you can't make this stuff up. And now you got the Ever Forward sitting out in the Chesapeake Bay in the mud. They're having to remove containers and take them to Baltimore. So this is like, you know, I feel bad for the the crew of that ship, and I feel bad for everybody who's trying to to get it out. But man, you're not having a bad day unless you're the owners of, uh, you know, blocking up the Suez Canal and now being stuck in the bay. Not a good year uh, for for that shipping line. No doubt about it. (laughs) Agreed. All right. So we will leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. Michael, I expect we will do a robust, uh, a series of maybe robust wrap-ups with the rest of the policy team after session. We're going to have a bunch of content on our blog. We always do that. So You'll, you'll have everything you need uh, if, if you want to take the time for some light reading material after the, <laughs> the session ends, because we're going to have just loads and loads of information on bills, bills that MAKO took positions on, our initiative bills, big updates. So look forward to that and look forward to a series of wrap-ups on this podcast. But always follow along on social media as well, Facebook, Twitter. And then, of course, you can find everything you're looking for on the Conduit Street blog. But we'll leave it there for tonight. For Michael Sanders, and this is Kevin Canale signing off. And we will talk to you soon.